Happy to have you all here. I want to wake, uh, welcome you. This is a meeting, actually, of the behavioral decision-making group that's been uh, ongoing in the departments of political science and psychology and um, economics for the last, I guess, two years. And I'm just pinch-hitting this afternoon for Alan Weissman, uh, who's done uh, most of the organizing and arranging of uh, David's talk here. David Siegel is a professor, assistant professor of political science at Florida State, and he has research interests that span both American politics, comparative politics, and international relations. He uses formal and computational methods to study things like political violence and elections, terrorism, and social networks. Uh, he's studied both the, in a uh, qualitative typology of social network structures that predicts levels of participation, the degree of media impact, and he's also studied uh, the funding and, I guess, underfunding of terrorist organizations. He's, he's working currently on a book uh, with Jonathan Bender, uh, which I guess will not be the main focus of what you're going to talk about today or will be. Not even related. But today he's going to talk about repression and social networks and collective action. So I'm very grateful for David uh, Siegel for agreeing to come up and visit us. It's good to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. Um, I think there's a mic here. Um, so thanks, Rick. Um, said today's talk will be about repression, social networks, and collective action. Um, um, yeah, maybe maybe the front. Yeah, there'll be some pictures, lots of pictures. So, um, so the first thing we have to do here to talk about repression is to define repression, right? So this is going to be a pretty general model in the line of behavioral decision theory here. And as far as this talk goes, repression is any activity designed to end any collective action. Now, when I say any, I really mean any here. We can talk about repression performed by states, by insurgent groups, by terrorists, by party whips. doesn't matter. Collective actions can include protests, insurgency, terrorism, voting, vote choice, or turnout. As long as there is some group of people who want to do something and some other exogenous entity that wants to stop them from doing something, this is applicable. There'll be a few caveats to that as I go on, but I'll get to those as I get there. Um, but by and large, this is a general model of repression and action under repression. And the key substantive question I'm going to ask here with this model is, under what context will repression succeed? Now, at this point, I really have to stop for a second and just say, this is a positive paper, not a normative paper. Right? At times, there are pretty clear statements that say things like, the state can repress better if it does this. I'm not trying to provide you know, ways for the state to repress better. This is a purely positive um, paper to understand how repression works. And you know, normatively, the idea is that once you understand how repression works, you can understand how to not use it in the times when it's actually bad and use it when it can be beneficial. Right? Um, now, this is a straightforward question, I think, but it doesn't have much of a straightforward answer in literature. Right? So empirically, there's a ton of research out there, very good research, that looks at how repression changes dissent, for instance. Um, state repression affects dissent against the state. The empirics are completely indeterminate. You can find evidence of research very well done that says repression decreases dissent. You can find evidence that says it increases dissent. You can find evidence that there's a U-shaped relationship between repression and dissent. Right? And all of this depends on context. So there'll be regression, there'll be a bunch of factors, and whatever context you have will determine in a lot of ways the relationship between repression and dissent. Theory really comes in two stripes here. One is sort of 
post hoc theorizing about what happened, right? So, okay, we got this result empirically that said repression didn't, repression increased ascent in this context. Okay, well, why did that happen? I think it's for these reasons, right? Now, that can be perfectly accurate. I don't want to at all demean this research, right? That can be perfectly true, but it's not helpful for generalizing about repression, you know, overall. The other type of theory ends up being theory in the aggregate, right? So you ignore the details of individual behavior, and you focus on, say, leadership of that group, or you focus on just sheer overall numbers. Right. So what I'm going to argue here, and I think this is not working as supposed to. Let me back up a second. That is very weird. Anyway. That slide appears to be something messed up. What I'm going to argue here is that in order to actually understand repression, you have to understand why people act and what is sufficient to make them stop acting, right, at an, at an individual level, not at a sort of aggregate level. Now, in line with the sort of behavioral decision theory aspect here, um, I'm going to talk about not a formal model, not, sorry, not a, not a um, formal theory model in the sense of rash, pure rationality, Rather, I'm going to steal a term from Clifford Geertz here and call it thick behavior. What I mean here is really any more complicated behavior that we think in some ways better mirrors individual behavior in real situations. And I'll get to what I mean in this context in a second. Before I do so, though, this doing so introduces some complexity. So there's really two ways in general to incorporate complicated behavior. Right? The easiest, the most direct way, which is the typical way used in behavioral game theory, for instance, is to incorporate complexity directly. So you just put terms in your utility that correspond to things like inequality aversion, right? So if you don't like having an unequal outcome, you put a term in your utility function that says, I don't like that unequal outcome, right? That's one way of doing it. Now, that'll give you very specific, outco very specific outcomes for your model that might be more accurate in certain situations. You lose two things, though. You lose some generality if that particular behavioral aspect is not relevant for your overall, um, for other situations. And you often lose tractability, because it's very difficult to actually do these models with a whole series of terms. Right? And the fact of the matter is, if you want to include lots of people in your models, right, you're not going to get every possible motivation by putting into utility functions. It's not going to happen. So what I'm going to argue today is another useful technique that is very rarely used, in, particularly in political science or in economics, is to put it colloquially to punt. Right? Punt on the issue of what motivations people have and instead attempt to average across multiple motivations. And I'll explain exactly what I mean there um, shortly. But the idea is that you gain in generality at the cost of losing some specificity in what outcomes you can get. And this is all, be, this is all pretty abstract right now, but it should be clear shortly. Um, there are two types of complexity I'm going to add here. One is the title of the, of the slide, and which part of a larger book length project that I'm working on. Um, this is paper two out of what should be, I think, four or so. I should point out that if you have any questions, I come from a business school, so you can pretty just ask me in the middle. I'm not going to be offended. Just raise your hand. I'll be happy to answer them. Um, the, second, the first thing is social networks. And the idea here is that individuals don't make decisions in a vacuum. Right? There's a wealth of empirical literature across virtually every field you can think of, everything from you know, the humanities to the hard sciences, that explicitly detail how people make decisions based on the decisions of others. This is particularly true in the case of repression. There's tons of research out there showing that people's decisions of whether or not to participate, despite the threat of repression, 
is due to other people's actions, right? And these can be reasons as diverse as safety in numbers, information, direct influence, reciprocity, um, fairness. doesn't really matter for the case of this argument. As long as you buy it, there are some reasons why you might consider why other people are participating in your decision. Now, in particular, the people people tend to care about are people important to them, right? People they can trust, people whose behavior gives them some signal about their own likelihood of participating. And these are people I want to define as loads within your social network. So a social network here is defined functionally as all the people whose decisions you care about. Right? These could be friends and family, possibly business associates, neighbors. doesn't really matter here. The point is there are people whose decisions you care about. So that's the first complexity. That's going to be the main one I'm going to talk about today. I'm also going to talk briefly. Okay, there's an odd removal of the last dot on this computer. Hmm? <laughs> Seriously. The last dot. Um, the last thing we talk about is psychological responses. Right? And the idea here is that people who respond to repression don't always respond to repression in a completely logical manner. Right? If you see a friend or family member cut down right, in the process of a, of a protest, say, it's unlikely that you can respond completely rationally and think, oh, well, that's one fewer person I know who's participating. I'm going to go about and you know, make my decision according to that. Right? You're probably going to have some emotional response. So because of the way I'm going to average over behavior, I'm going to be able to incorporate emotional response directly into this model. And I'll show you exactly how I'm going to do that much later. So OK, let's see if I can actually put this up again. OK. Now this is, despite my attempts to make this pretty straightforward, this can get complicated as a model. So what I'm going to do is break it up into three parts. The first is a simple model that more or less is a slightly fancy version. If you're familiar with um, Koran's World Politics piece in 91, now out of never, it's about rebellion in Eastern Europe. Um, and here we're considering only aggregate behavior under oppression. So there are no networks and there's no psychological response. It's just the baseline consideration. I'll talk about this briefly. The second model I'm going to include will be adding networks. Right? So I'll go over what the model looks like, what the networks look like, and then what the results are from these networks. The third model is psychological responses to repression. And here, we're the same thing as before. We take the second model with networks, add psychological responses, see how things change. And the reason for doing this is not just to make it easier to convey to an audience, it's to make sure that you don't lose track of the causality inherent in the model. right? These models can get complicated, and if you don't be careful when you're adding new terms, you can very easily lose track of what's happening and why things are happening. And so the whole point of this is to understand the causality behind repression and how effective it is. You really don't want to do that. And then, just to convince you all this is not just some pie-in-the-sky sort of modeling exercise with no actual you know, application, I'll give you a very specific application of how you can use this model to make predictions in novel circumstances that you can then test. Um, in particular, the example I'm going to use is the example of the Iraq 9th, January 2005 legislative elections, where I'll predict differential turnout among two different um, groups of two different followers, I mean followers of two different groups, and then show how that's borne out in the actual electoral results. And I'm afraid to push the button now because the dot will disappear. But the final um, aspect, I'll talk briefly if I have time about research directions where you can go from here. Or it's just taunting me. Um, okay. So the first model, okay, population. There are really two actors in this model, two types of actors. One 
is the enormous mass, the enormous mass of people who are going to be either act, acting in this collective action or not participating. And here, it's pretty straightforward, there are n heterogeneous actors who can decide in every period whether or not to participate in some collective action. And again, this is a general collective action. It could be anything. And all these actors can decide in every period, OK, do I want to participate or do I want to stay home? I should note that if you know anything about these kind of models with you, when you have um, these sort of mass behaviors, the ability to stop participating is actually somewhat novel for these models. What I'm going to do, and this is where the averaging of our behavior comes in, is I'm going to separate motivations into two parts. The first I'm going to call internal motivations. And these incorporate any particular motivation for or against participation that is unrelated to others' participation at that particular moment, for that particular collective action. So this can include socialization factors. This can include things like moral certainty. This can include opportunity costs that you get because you missed work that day when you're protesting. Right? All this stuff falls under internal motivations because it does not relate directly to other people's participation that, that, for that particular movement, that particular rebellion, or so on. The other class, which is logically um, distinct from that one, would be external motivations. And here, it's all the stuff we didn't cover in internal motivations, in particular, External motivations depend directly on others' participation. So the external case is where you see things like safety numbers, informational effects, influence. They come all in the external. Internal is just your general nature, right? Your other things you care about, which are, I assume I don't know. I'm not going to know. There's no chance any researcher ever is going to be able to survey every member of a population and ask them all what's important to them. So rather than try to guess, I'm going to punt. Right? I'm going to say, I don't know details about this, about this um, individual behavior. Instead, I'm going to assume things about the distribution of behavior in a population. What I'm assuming in particular is that these internal motivations across a population are distributed according to a normal distribution. The idea, and I'm just a, this is a hand wave V, there's a little better explanation in this paper, but the hand wave explanation is get a lot of people with a lot of different motivations, add them all together, you get a normal distribution because of the central limit theorem, or rather a variant of that central limit theorem. So instead of looking at each individual motivation, right, and assuming people have some set of them, I'm going to look at a distribution with two, only two parameters. And that's going to be distribution of the whole population. If I were to draw any particular person from the population, I'd have no clue what they want, what that person wanted. All I would know is that the population together is distributed in some fashion. So that's what I mean by averaging across behaviors. Man. OK. This one's important, so I'll do this. External motivations over here, right? External motivations, in contrast, are not, are not averaged because they relate directly to the, to the actual actions within the model, right? People participate, you change your external motivations. More people participate, you become more likely yourself to participate. And here's the first point where I'm actually limiting the applicability of the model here. So this applies to any situation in which the more people who participate, the more likely it is that you are to want, want to participate as well. Right? That covers a whole wide swath of, of substantive areas. It does not cover something like public goods provision after a certain point, where you might think, OK, the public good is already taken care of. My participation is not going to help. It's just a waste of my money, so I'm not going to do it anymore. So for that situation, it doesn't apply. It only applies to run up to that point. But the important thing to remember here is this is the key dynamic of the model. The more people who participate in your network, 
the more people, the more likely it is that you are to participate as well. Well, it, it depends on it depends on how you how you conceptualize um, repression, the ability of repression. If it's if it has a, a certain set amount and it either goes here or there, you're right that that, that limits some of that applicability. Um, but if you think it's it's more localized, so local police, for instance, then it, it doesn't. So it depends on how you conceptualize that. But that, that's definitely true. Um, okay. The second actor in the model is a unitary actor. It's the repressive entity. I call it entity to avoid saying state over and over again because it's not only a state, it could be any repressive thing. Um, but you also find that I have trouble saying entity over and over again, so I'm going to say state occasionally. But just remember that it's more general than that. Um, because my interest here is not in figuring out why the state's repressing. See, I did it already. Um, it's it, my interest is in why, how repression affects um, behavior. I'm not going to spend much time on the motivations behind this actor. I'm simply going to assume this is some exogenous force that wants to stop these people from doing the thing they want to do. I'm going to be more concerned with how it can do that. Right? So I'm going to consider two kinds or two types of repression here. One I'm going to call mild. It's far from mild often, but just to um, distinguish it from harsh. Mild repression here takes the form of selective disincentives. Right? This could be limited forms of violence, such as you could get from a water cannon, say, against protesters. It could be... Um, Selective payoffs to movement leaders to try to get them from stopping to lead the movement. It could be diminished property rights of the whole population if they keep, if they keep you know, fighting against you. The only thing that matters in this category is that the repression does not remove the individual being repressed from the population of consideration. So it does not remove the individual from the networks. So when you repress that person mildly, that person remains in the population to influence other people. That's the distinguishing factor here. The second factor I call harsh repression, and this really is harsh. Um, this is removal from society via, say, murder, exile, imprisonment, whatever you want to call it, right? You actually physically remove that person from society, and that person's behavior no longer influences other people in the society. So those are the distinguishing factors here. Um, the second factor, because thankfully repressive groups don't always have maximal strength, right, is the strength of repression. So, and this is going to be a continuous variable here, the more strong the repression is, the more selective disincentives you can apply per period, the more people you can move per period, it's just more repression, right? It's just very exactly correlated to the colloquial view of more repression. And I should note this is application only to participants. There are some cases where it might be beneficial to apply sort of proactive repression to people who aren't doing anything at the moment. Um, that's actually fairly rare, it depends in detail upon the network structure and the distribution of motivations of the network. Um, because of that, because by and large it's actually not beneficial to do this, to, re to repress people, particularly when you have psychological responses, I'm going to assume it's only applied to participants here. Um, okay, so the model itself has a sequence of events. At the beginning, I'm going to distribute internal motivations and then set external motivations to the minimum possible. What this does is start the, start the whole thing when no one participates, and I have some population with some distribution that I know, but I don't know who has what motivation. It's completely unknown, right? It's just some distribution across the population. 
And this is the point I should point out that models of networks, and even without the network here, these models are typically intractable. So there are some things you can get out of them if you use some fancy math and you make some assumptions on behavior, on strategic complementarity, substitutabilities, and so on. I'm not making the assumptions here. Because of that, I can't actually solve anything analytically. So what I do is I turn to simulation. So the idea for this whole paper and all those things you'll see generally arise by distributing these things in some fashion, running the model through some number of periods until it settles down. I'll get to that in a second. And then doing, taking data on that and doing that a thousand times for every single parameter value. Then what I do is I map out how these, da this, these data, data um, vary with these parameters. Right? So it's the same thing as a comparative static in economics, if you're familiar with that kind of thing. Um, it's just not an analytic comparative static. So first I distribute everything, start the history there, and then I repeat the following actions until everything settles down. And by settles down here, I mean no one changes their mind for 50 periods in a row. Right? Just everyone's happy with, with the decision. The first thing I do is update external motivations. Right? So everyone looks around themselves, looks at the people in their network, and decides how good or bad they feel about participating based on the, the present participation of others. Um, this is done simultaneously for the whole population. Then everyone thinks, okay, given this participation level, do I want to participate or not? Or do I want to stop participating? That's next. Then any mild repression is applied. So if there's any selective disincentives, they get applied now. I should point out when we deal with psychological um, responses, that will also happen right now. So any psychological response will happen at the same time here. Then harsh repression is applied, so people are removed. And then finally, I take data on that period. And this gets repeated over and over again to everyone to stop changing their mind. And the particular piece of data I'm going to talk about today is the maximal participation level achieved during a history. So this is, in some senses, how hot a protest got, or how hot a rebellion got, how many people <coughs> voted in the end. Right? It's the maximum level of participation achieved. Now, so that's the sort of model in words, but I have a nice little graphical explanation that's going to show you how this works in practice. Here are seven people. There are no lines here, but assume they're all connected to each other. Those calm, light blue line people at front are people not participating at the moment. The person in the middle is participating, hence the angry, you know, redness or whatever. Um, time passes, right, in this model. And all these people look to the participant and think, you know what? Maybe I have to stop sitting down, right? Maybe I have to actually act. Maybe the time comes to act. You know, if she's brave enough to, to, to rise up in the streets, um, maybe I am too. So over time, people tend to join in the movement, right? And it keeps going, right? So they join in the movement now. More time passes. And now maybe a fourth person joins in. But at this point, right, the state says, you know what? This is not good. You know, four-sevenths of our population is in the streets. That's a bad idea for our you know, stability. So it cracks down. And because the state's a horrible state, right, it cracks down violently. And it removes the middle person. Right? So the question is, what happens? Right? What happens under this repression? Well, for the sake of argument, let's say nothing happens yet. Right? So there's a sort of stalemate here. The people in the streets are happy in the streets. They're not gonna, they have enough support in and among themselves to, keep, to stay there. But no new people want to join. There's just not enough of a, a number. There are not, there are not enough people in the streets at the moment. More time passes, nothing changes. But the state's not happy, right? Half its population is still in the streets. That's a bad thing for it. 
So it cracks down again, takes out another person. Now what happens? Well, if you call that bottom person here, only joined in when it had three other people to join. And it was willing to stay with two other people, but one other person, that's too little, right? That's just not safe. So that person decides to stop, right? A diminution of, of, of participation due to repression, this is a direct diminution, right? This person's gone, so states directly reduce the, pop, the participation level by killing someone. This is indirect, right? This is an indirect effect of the overall sort of network structure of the overall interdependence of individual decision-making. And it can take longer to, to fully play out. This person over here, having had no one to support, support her, stops too. And now the whole movement ends after eight periods with loss of two lives. So over there, so that person, so this person was willing to go only when two people say we're, we're in, right? So in the first period, one person, that's not enough. In the second period, there are three people, that is enough. So this is happening simultaneously, the same, the same period. So the same time, the fourth person goes, and the state cracks down. And then this, the person's okay at the moment. Question? Um, you're, you're not assuming any kind of centrality in the network structure? Not here. They're equally connected, yeah, right? they're all equally connected. I, I will later and show you how it's different. This is still model one, so there's no network at all, really. There's, everyone's connected, in that sense. So, okay. so here's the one result I'm going to show from this um, particular model. And there are a couple of things to look at. And what you're seeing here is, and these are graphs you'll see a couple of these throughout the talk. Um, on the y-axis here, you're seeing the maximum participation level achieved in that, in that history. That's the, data, that's the piece of data I mentioned earlier, datum. Um, and that's mean over a thousand periods. On the, on the x-axis here, you're seeing increasing repression. So as you go further to the right, repression increases in both of these graphs. Now, the most obvious thing to look at, right, is that as repression increases, participation decreases, right? That's sort of obvious. You'd assume any model that didn't have this is probably pretty poor, right? Um, that's true for both cases. Um, a little more interesting is that these four lines represent different rates of updating, different rates of learning about the behavior of others. That top line there corresponds to the case where you learn about, where you internalize others' participation immediately. The bottom line corresponds to the case where you are really unwilling to give up your prior beliefs about safety or whatever, and you take a long time to internalize other people's participation. What you can see is that the faster you do this internalization, the more participation you get. Not only that, you get more robust participation to repression, right? If there's no repression, they all come out the same, um, pretty much, because you just have to wait long enough and eventually they'll get to the streets. If there is repression, then you need that fast updating to really overcome the effect of repression, right? So that's, that's the first thing. But the far more important thing, which is the title of this slide, is that the type of repression does not matter at all here. Right, that's a really big result, right? So this is harsh repression. People are actually being killed, removed from the network, right? This is mild repression. The network stays the same. People just change some of their incentives, right? Very different substantively, right? Really, you know, they're both repression, but they're very different substantively, very different mechanisms. Despite that, the graphs are exactly the same, right? Not exactly, but they're as close as you can get with, you know, meaning over a thousand times. And this is not just because I chose some stuff, some particular values here. This is true no matter what networks you look at. This is always true. It does not matter in terms of how participation 
is affected by repression, whether the repression is harsh in my sense or mild in my sense. It is completely irrelevant. Now, the temptation here is to jump immediately to some kind of normative response, right? Oh, that's great. We don't have to actually repress harshly, right? And in fact, when I presented this to a bunch of um, military types, that's what they saw, and we were happy with that. That's not quite accurate at this point, though, because the one thing that could be different is the cost per unit of repression. Right? These are arbitrary scales. This is an arbitrary scale over here. I don't know how much it costs to repress someone you know, via payouts. Right? So it's entirely possible it's cheaper to repress over here. Right? So as of yet, it's not the case that we can just say definitively, hey, there's this great normative argument. You should never repress harshly. Just stop. Right? We, we can still say that, obviously, but it's not objectively, positively clear from this thing. That's going to change when we talk about psychological responses, by the way. So we will be to say something normative, normative later. No. I'll get, I'll get to that. But yeah, so far it's non. This is just purely non-network. Everyone's connected to everyone else. So that's that. That's the non-network story. Question. Yes. Whereas for all the others that joined later, the only thing that changed was the external yes. not the internal. Yes. So you have a hardcore one and yes. others that joined just Exactly. Yeah. So these all these models, and this is true for all these models you might see that involve this kind of ramping up of, of outcomes, they all typically rely upon some hardcore group of people who are willing to participate despite risk, despite everyone else's participation. So, so for, for the previous picture, um, um, it didn't change because everyone treated everyone else equally. So all they really cared about was enough people in there to give them some safety, say. So it didn't matter that particular person who was the initial rabbit rouser was removed. That didn't matter. It will matter in what we're about to see. But for now, it doesn't actually matter. So, in fact, I'll show you right now. Um, so I probably don't have to do this one because people seem to be willing to acknowledge that networks are important here. But just in case, um, I have another stick figure diagram to show this one. Same situation before, same arrangement of, of people's motivations. But now there's what people call a wheel network or a star network, where everyone's connected only to the person in the middle. But what happens? Well, with only, with only the middle person mattering, participation happens immediately. Right? Everyone looks to the center. The center says, let's go. Everyone goes. Right? So it's a very fast ramp up. But answer to that question, right, what happens if the same person is removed? Well, for a moment, they're still participating, but you've taken out the center. You've destroyed the entire network, not just removed a single person from it, because you've actually fundamentally changed the network structure. And what happens then is everyone stops participating, because, you know, why bother? Now, so that, what it says is that networks themselves can lead to drastically different actions, not only in terms of how much participation you should expect within them, but in terms of how repression interacts with participation and with, with the networks, right? So not only does level, do levels matter, but also um, repression's effect because it depends on networks. Do you learn participate? In other words, you have some set of internal, <coughs> the internal motivations have to be constant? No, and I'll, I'll go into cases when they're not constant, but um, here, they, here they are because they're deliberately set to be things that don't change over the course of this particular um, event. 
It brings up one other point, too, though, which is how do the state repress this, right? Before we considered t general types, we didn't consider how, what technology repression is, right? How does the state go about doing it? What if the state does not have the intelligence, um, the capability to target that central person, right, which happens often? Well, the state has to rely on some kind of random repression here. More often than not, the state removes some peripheral person. What happens then? Right? Nothing. Because no one really cares what this poor person thought, except for the middle person who has plenty of other support, even if, even if she needed it. And nothing changes. So if, this, if the oppressive entity does not have the, intelli the, the intel or the um, capability to target that middle person, it's going to be a long, bloody movement that it either result in the state's eventual overthrow or lots and lots of death. Right? So it's a very different outcome depending on, on the, on the um, structure of the network and on how the state can act in response to that network structure. So to model that, I'm going to do two things. Um, one is introduce networks into this thing. That's your question? Oh, aren't the mutations typically introduced by peripheral actions? Um, so the question is, is, is between, so this is an example to show you how this particular one can spread. The question of, of innovations and how, and how they're, and how they're um, introduced, the question is, 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 is there, are they spread by peripheral actors or are they introduced initially by peripheral actors? And then the question becomes, can you change your internal motivations based on some knowledge you get from someone else? Right, so typically, if it's, a, if it's an innovation introduced by someone else, right, the reason that a central person will adopt and then help other people to adopt is that they think it's a good idea for some reason external to that. So you could incorporate that. It will be effectively as the same modeling effect as the psychological response I'll show you. Um, and I, so, but it, it, will have, it does have that effect. Um, so I introduced here are social networks. Um, and again, there will be some averaging here because the fact of the matter is, with the exception of certain well-defined um, empirical cases, we more often than not cannot get good data on network connections between people, particularly in areas of repression, right? You read, I read some great work, put in tons of, many years, you know, in the field, and what they get is some kind of vague group level, level um, behavior. Because it's just very hard to get intera interaction information about who's important to whom, right? So rather than try to do that, because it'll often be a useless model then for most people, I'm going to again punt. Instead, introduce a qualitative network topology here. This is not an exhaustive topology, but it's a topology that covers a wide swath of actual empirical cases. And I'll show you what that is in a second. I chose these particular members of the topology because they're useful when data are poor, right? They look like something. So if you're a scholar, a research scholar in the field, and you see a thing that looks like this, right, or like this, and I'll show you what the, this is in a second, you can tell pretty fast which type of network you have. And then, judging only by the type, you can often make useful hypotheses from your, from your case. And even when you can't, you can at the very least know which additional data will be worthwhile for you. So that's, that's the point of these qualitative network types. And again, I mentioned the different repressive technologies. I'm not going to look at every possible one, because that would be kind of morbid. Um, I'm going to look at two different types here. One I call random or equal, and that's exactly what it sounds like. The chance of being removed or the chance is equal for everyone. The chance of I mean, everyone gets the same disincentives. Just everyone's treated equally by the, repressor, by the repressor. Targeted is also what it sounds like. The repressor goes after first the person with the most social influence. Okay. So the networks themselves, here's where the pretty pictures come in. Um, there are four networks I'm going to look at here. This is a small world network. 
it's you've probably seen in the news if you've seen anything about six degree separation, Kevin Bacon game, anything like that. Right? This, this is this is where it comes from. The idea is you have a whole bunch of really tightly connected people, and some people eventually move away for whatever reasons, and you get some connections that bridge long gaps between social groups. This is meant to apply to sort of a modern suburb city type of situation where you have this type of behavior. And I should say the things in the bottom are the parameters of the model. There are usually two each. I'm not going to talk about them because it's not really relevant for this talk. Um, but I'll answer questions. I'm happy to answer questions about it, Q&A if you want. Um, the second one is a village or clique network. You have very tightly connected people who are only sparsely connected outside of their particular village or clique. And it applies, as you might guess, to rural village type things or cliques. Um, the third is an opinion leader network. If you know the network literature, there's also a scale-free network. Um, the idea here is you have a few very important um, leaders. They're in the middle here. They have many connections. They're very influential. But most everyone else is a follower. They just have, you know, they're connected only to one or more of these people in the middle. And the very final one is a hierarchy. This is a sort of top-down approach. I just found a better picture of a hierarchy. Basically, it looks like this. There's exponentially increasing people at each level. And there's some chance that people in the same levels are connected to each other. So those are the four types. And this is obviously meant to model a hierarchy. More of a you know organizational network. Okay. So what does this all mean? How is this used? What you see here is a sketch. This is sort of a wide, a large scale version of, of that stick figure, the first stick figure diagram. And here you have the dynamics of, of, of removal, and this is all removal in a village network between time one and time 100. Let me ask you, um, what's the difference between these two pictures? Anyone? So there's some interactions lost, that's true. But what else? So one fewer village, right? And that's, there are 20 people in each village here in this particular picture. Out of 38 people, more than half removed from the exact same village. Right? And now, if you think of villages at a different ethnic group, say, this is effectively genocide. Right? You've, moved, you've killed every single person in the village. But the important point to note here, besides the fact that it's genocide, which is obviously important, is that this is not due to any deliberate act on the part of the repressor. There's nothing in the model that says, go up to everyone in this village, they're bad, they're evil. There's nothing in the model that, that preferences removal from those people. And in fact, this is targeted removal. It moves the people with the most connections first. As those villages get smaller, they are less and less likely to be removed by the repressor. So the reason you get this effective genocide is solely because of the nature of participatory spread in this particular type of network. Right? So you can see genocide, effective genocide, when there was absolutely no intent to commit genocide, only to stop participation, which of course has its own strong negatives, of course, um, obviously. But there's no intent to wipe out a particular group. Secondly, note that this is kind of hard to see the difference, right? It's not obvious immediately that there's one fewer village here. And it's not obvious to the people in this population who have only sparse ties to each other. In this situation, repression is really easy to sweep under the rug, right? Some number of years pass, and most people in this network have never experienced repression. They'll have no way of knowing that the state was repressive 20 years ago, and so respond very differently, right?
Yes. That's where all the activity was. Exactly. So by just taking the most active player, it was always the most active player was in that village? Well, so they don't take only the most active one. They, they take all the active ones. So once they remove anyone else from the network, the only spread remains is in this hotbed, right, this one village hotbed. So they just keep targeting the village over and over again because of the dense connections and the, the sparseness of other connections outside, that village keeps trying because that's the way the participation spreads in this network. Right, so it's solely a matter of the spread, not of anything else exogenous to this model. Um, but yeah, it's that spread. And, that's, and different networks give very different outcomes in this case. So same kind of picture here. And again, this is dynamic, so this is a single history. It's the, it happens to every history like this, but it's just a sample. Um, this is an opinion leader network. Same deal, same number of people. See a whole bunch of important leaders in the center and many more sparsely connected people on the outside. Time 100, time 100. Here it's much more obvious what happens, right? The middle got denuded, right? Lots of leaders lost their lives, right? So almost the same number of total people got removed. Oh, this ended up having a much lower participation rate and ended much faster. Um, what happens is the leaders got removed. So it's different in two ways. One, everyone knows about this, right? Because everyone's connected to the leaders, this is a population-wide factor, right? This is not something to sweep under the rug. Um, and two, any leaders remaining are actually de facto supporting the regime, right? Because their non-participation spurs other people not to participate too. So they sort of selectively removed the leaders against them, kept the leaders for them, and you can imagine after a few years there'd be a nice, um, a, a nice story about how these leaders were bad and these leaders were good and so on and so forth. No, sorry. You're, sorry. At the, at the end of each of these time 100s, no one's participating anymore. Oh. Sorry, I should have made that clear. Um, and it's kind of... Oh, question? Why are these So in terms of the villages, you can imagine that in the time frame of one movement, new villages don't actually pop up, right? Um, but, but, but leaders... But, but, well, not all these are active. Some of these are not active at all. These include all the villages in the population. Some just don't ever activate. But it's a very but the, for the leadership, that's completely true. You can have more leaders, and that I'll talk about under more research, additional research. It turns out it's extremely difficult to deal with endogenous networks. Um, so you have to be very careful how you, how you implement that. And I'll talk about some ideas if I, if I get a chance at the end of the talk. Um, but the cool thing about this is besides the fact you can get these kind of results, you can actually see how society changes its shape under repression, right? So you can get some hypotheses that don't relate to just you know, aggregates, you can actually look at how you should expect the population to look after it's been repressed. But we do have aggregates here. Let me do it in time. Um, we do have aggregates here, and here are a couple of them. Um, these are two equal influence networks. So in a small world in a village network, you generally see equal numbers of, of influence for all people. And I'm going to go over this pretty quickly. Um, the most important thing to note here is that Sure, there are some differences. Each of these lines is a different um, level of parameterization. Each of these lines is different, but don't worry about that for now. The important point is the big difference between here and here is not that one's a small world, one's a village. It's not that it's different parameterizations. It's solely because on the left, you have a slightly more motivated population than on the right. The second big thing to notice is that as you get more repression, all the differences decrease. So what it tells you is when you're trying to figure out what data you need to know when dealing with these types of networks, small or village, 
you don't really need to know that much information about the network parameterizations. That's, in, that's useful at the margins. But by and large, you're not going to have that kind of great data. So don't worry about it. Right? Don't spend your money, your, your, your grant money on that. Spend your money on trying to figure out how motivated is the population right? and how much repression did you have. Because those are the two factors in these type of networks that are really important to figuring out outcomes. Right? The other stuff is sort of nice to know. You get better results, but it's not essential. Oh, it's, it's pure, this, is pure, this is purely for like visual. I've just made this point. If you put up two small words, look the same. You put up two villages, look the same. So it's just to make this point. Um, it's not a. I'm not trying to like you know put one by you. They, they both. If I, I have I have pictures with two small worlds, look the same, but then I never show the village at all, and they don't know if that's different. So motivation yes, motivation is key. Yes, motivation is Looks the same as that. Yes. So yes, small world, moderate looks just like this. Village strongly looks just like this. Actually, village is slightly less, but again, it's, a, it's at the margins that it matters. Now, it's very different for elite, elite networks. Right? When you have networks when you're elites, and that's the um, opinion leader or the hierarchy, when you have people who are important, things get very different. Here, what matters far less, far more than um, motivations or oppression strength are how these elites are structured, how much influence they have, what they believe, and how the state is targeting them. Right, it's all about the elites in this case. So on the left here, you have a case when you have a, an opinion leader network where the leaders have sort of random motivations. Um, if you look at it, the bottom line, the, the, the pink lines here correspond to having low influence leaders, and you get very little participation. The blue line corresponds to high influence participation. I mean, high, high influence leaders, you get lots of participation. That's the first thing to note, is leader influence is extremely important in these networks. The second thing to note is that the difference between targeted and random removal is extreme here. If you can target the leaders, the line drops precipitously. That's probably using this thing. Right? You, you, you drop. Right, this line here drops. You require very little repression. I'm just going to kill people here. Um, very little repression to actually stop the movement entirely quickly by just targeting leaders. It's the same thing as that stick figure diagram, just but much bigger. In contrast, if you can only remove people randomly, you often get someone who's uninfluential, and there's not much change. There's one caveat to that. That's what you see in the right here. If all the leaders are for this movement, if they all have really high motivations, it is extremely difficult to actually stop the movement. Right? And that's true for both types of, re of repression, both technologies of repression. It's just difficult to stop this movement. So the sort of moral there is, if you're a leader, sort of Machiavellian moral here, if you're a leader and you have unified leaders against you, abdicate. You're not going to win. Okay. So now, um, third one, really quick, psychological responses. Right? Again, take the same model as before, but now add the ability of, of people to respond emotionally. Now, two emotional things I'm going to look at here. One is anger. So you see someone in your network removed that makes you angry. That increases your internal motivations. And if you think, and you can also substitute found information about new information here too. That's the same effect as anger in this case. Second is fear. They decrease their motivations because they're afraid it could happen to them because something really important to them was lost. And because I did this general behavior model, this is actually fairly easy to include. All you do is add to the internal motivations. This is the last graph I'm going to show. Um, same y-axis. The x-axis here is additional anger or fear. To the right of the zero, you have anger, so that makes you more likely to participate. Left is fear, 
And you see on the left here, there's a fairly big effect of both. Right? So on the left here, fear certainly depresses participation. Oh, sorry, that, that brown line, that straight brown line, is what you expect under no repression. So it's the baseline participation level that the repressive entity would experience if it didn't bother repressing at all. So it's about here 35% in this particular example. So if there's fear, repression is even more effective than normal. Right? It drops it down a lot. If there's anger, on the other hand, repression is extremely ineffective and it happens very quickly. Even a little bit of repression here, and these lines are different rates of repression. The um, green one's high repression. Can triple um, five times, six times the level of participation that you got under no anger. And this is a little bit of anger, relatively, right? A little bit of anger can change dramatically the entire outcome of this thing. So if you even think there might be a psychological response to your targeted, like, harsh repression, it's not a good strategy. And there's some evidence for this, in fact. There's a, there's a paper in 2005 by Kaplan et al., um, which looks at how um, Palestinian militants respond to both targeted assassinations of other militants and to civilian casualties. Turns out that the people that they matter to them, these militants, they respond with more attacks. Civilian casualties don't change their more attacks. They don't actually care about the people who aren't part of their worldview. Right? It doesn't actually matter to them. But they do care about people who, aren't, who are part of the worldview, and they respond with additional anger in a sense. It's just an, it's an increase in internal motivations. So now you think it's an even better idea to participate. It just adds to that. So would it be like the more people get killed, the more people participate? Um, the more people get killed, the, the more angry, the more internal motivations increase, which often does lead to more participation. But it's balanced against more people getting killed also decreases it because you see fewer people participating. So there's, there's a trade-off. There is, again, one caveat to this. If all the elites are unified, neither anger or fear has much of an effect. So again, you don't want to go against a bunch of unified elites if you're, you know, Machiavelli. Machiavelli's prince, rather. Okay, so sorry for the length here. Um, going really quickly now through the example. For those of you who don't remember, um, this was a big deal at the time, right? It was the Herod, the new Iraq, right? And on the one hand, you had the state trying to work its way out of a transitional government. On the other hand, you had insurgents who actually claimed hyperbolically to wash Baghdad streets with voters' blood. Right? This was a big deal. And the and question is, what was going to happen right, under repression? The thing is, no one really knew. If you look at opinions at the time, you get turnout estimates from 30% to 85%, right? It's a fairly large range of potential turnout. So people didn't have a good idea of, of how repression was going to play into the overall outcome of the election. But using this model and data that was all available before the election proper, and I should say, caveat, I didn't actually do this before the election proper, but the data were available before the election. Um, if you consider the structure of two different elite networks, you can actually come up with a prediction of how the different elites um, behave, uh, how the followers of the elites behave, or should behave. So I'm um, considering two Shiite um, network elites, both of them are top of hierarchies. I'll be happy to explain why the hierarchies um, after. One is Sistani, Ali Talib Sistani. One is Muqtada al-Sadr. Right? Both inherited a hierarchy from earlier um, Ayatollahs. Well, he's not really an Ayatollah. Um, in the case of Sistani, Sistani had strong control over his hierarchy by virtue of a lot of esteem, um, unquestioned clerical um, power, and the nature of Shiism. Sadr, on the other hand, wasn't much of a cleric. 
Um, and at the time, he's since changed a little bit, but at the time, did not have control over his over organization. In particular, in, in terms of this election, Sestani said, it is a more imperative to vote. You should all go vote. And tacitly, you should vote for the UIA, the United Iraqi Alliance. Sadr had some mixed messages, but then he came out and said, boycott the election. Um, his, some of his elites said that. Some elites actually formed their own party, national independence, colleges, and elites. Um, so it was a, they didn't have control over that. So in terms of the model, treat them both as hierarchies, treat the top one as a unified elite, and the bottom as a divided elite. As far as other, other conditions, we can assume random repression. The fact of the matter is, despite the fact that insurgents tried to target Sistani, they failed. There's like a cordon around Sistani, you can't even talk to him. Um, so they failed, so repression was effectively random under both cases. And because they both inherited fairly established um, networks, I'm going to assume they have the same network parameters to avoid biasing the, the, out, the prediction. And I'm going to assume there's equal motivations because everyone has equal motivation to have power in this government. It was, it was not, it's not a first-past-the-post system. I mean, they all should have some power. So I'm assuming equal motivations. So what do you get? What the models say? The model makes a clear prediction, right? Top line, Sistani. Bottom line, Sadr. Same pictures before. You see both more participation for Sistani and importantly, more robust participation for Sistani as repression gets, gets bigger. So even though I don't know how much repression was in Iraq at the time, I mean, you can guess. I mean, you know certain deaths, but you don't know overall repression. For every level of repression, for up to a fairly strong level, there's substantially more participation for Sistani's followers than Sadr's. If Sadr's followers were encouraged to boycott, how is it that they would be pressed? I'm not claiming they, they were actually, well, there's general repression of, of their potential death. Um, they got encouraged various things. I mean, they got a mixed message. Um, but, but what's important is not what they were encouraged here. The important, importance is what they, they had individual incentives to participate, to vote, based on, you know, self-interest. Well, if you believe the network story, yes. Um, so, so if there's a direct influence, then yeah. So, so part of the decree, so part of the decrease could also be from that, right? Um, the problem with the boycott story is, is well, I'll show the boy, that's certainly possible. What I'm going to show next in terms of data says it's pretty unlikely that actually happened. Um, but that's certainly, that's certainly possible, which is why I don't show any Sunni pictures here. Even though Sunnis have a network, it was incredibly sparse. And I can show a Sunni picture here, which is like flat in the bottom. Um, Sunnis actually did boycott. There's lots of evidence for that, so there's really no point to showing this because it's an observation equivalent to, that, to both stories. But here I'll show some, I think, I think some suggested evidence that's not the case in the case of Sadr. That's a good point. Um, so clear predictions here. What happened? Here's a map of Iraqi turnout. Forget about the left part here. It's a Sunni region. As you can see, Sunnis didn't vote. They boycotted. Ambar province got 2%. Um, upper right here, Kurdish region. Don't think about that either. I don't have, I'm not I don't have information about the Kurds um, networks. High, high turnout, but they were also protected the whole time um, during the election. So again, not very useful. Shiite region over there and Baghdad. Shiite region, high turnout, rather much higher than the U.S. gets, you know, 60 to 70%. Even Baghdad at 48%, and Baghdad is the key here, right? Baghdad is substantially Sunni too, as I'm sure you know by watching the news. Um, subtract the Sunnis, you have a fairly high turnout in Baghdad, despite the fact that Baghdad was the location of a lot of the violence that day, right? I think there's 18 people killed in Baghdad that day, multiple bombings. So fairly high turnout, you know, even by our, you know, by our standards. Um, who do they vote for? And this is the suggested evidence I'm talking about. 
everyone down here clearly voted for the UIA, Sistani's party, right? So they voted and they voted for who Sistani, whom Sistani wanted them to vote for. Baghdad also voted for Sistani's party, right? So all these people who voted, the, oh, the clear majority, 61% almost, voted for Sistani's party, right? There's a strong turnout and they voted for Sistani's party. So that suggests evidence that they did not, in fact, either boycott or vote for Sardar's, Sardar's party, which got actually less than the Sunni party, which is pretty sad, actually, given the overall boycott of the Sunnis. So, Sistan, so Sadr got nothing of what he might have wanted. The story here, right? So Sadr's effect on the population was minimal. And the argument here is that's because of the networks, and we should have expected that. Right? Under any level of oppression, this type of network would um, not yield much, much participation. Well, the leader's part of the network. They don't strike me as equal leaders. I mean, one has enormous high reputation and lots of influence, and the other doesn't. So well, yeah, so that's the... That one has more impact on followers than the other, and you attribute to the network. I don't know whether you attribute oh. to the network or the fact that you're comparing you know, a national leader with someone who at that time was not. Well, so I have two answers to that one. Um, one, yes. Um, so one, Sadr was, I mean, Sadr did not have this, the standing, but he was able to mobilize large numbers of people for things that they agreed with already, right? So that he was actually viewed as quite, a, as quite an important figure at the time because he could mobilize giant turnouts in favor of removing U.S. occupation, right? Um, so that, that's one of us. But the other aspect is the fact that he was not a strong leader is exactly part of the network, right? So the fact that he could not control his, his fellow elites was both a, a factor of being a, being a weak leader and also as part of the network itself. So the other answer is this is not a great test. Right? This, this is a suggestive test. It's not meant to show, oh, the model is clearly right. It's meant to really show how to apply the model. Right? If you can set up these particular factors, you can apply the model to make a prediction. This is not the best empirical test, um, but I think it is, it is fairly suggestive in the sense that if you consider Sadr's ability to control his, his followers, his fellow elites, as part of his strength, then that, that's incorporated in the network structure of this, of this, of this model, and it, it, it affects the outcomes. So rather than just having to say, oh, well, he's a weak leader, you can actually say what that means, what, we, what it means to be weak. And here it means you can't control your fellow elites. So it's, it's, it's a formalization of, of, of the idea of weak. So I think I've taken a lot of time apologize. So I'm just going to not stop it before the concluding remarks here. Um, so I can open for questions now, or I could go to the concluding remarks. I'm totally happy to either. Okay, I'll go to the concluding remarks. Um, really fast. Um, so we saw that including social networks and psychological outcomes drastically changes the outcome of, of participation under repression, conditional on other factors. Um, the form of repression, in this case, the type of repression, was much less important than other details, which points out it's not useful to just go out and blindly gather all the possible data you want. You have limited resources. So you should check theoretically which is the most important data to grab first and go after that. And this theory can help dictate, can help guide you to which is the important data. And finally, I want to note that this really gets that you get at a combination of qualitative and formal analyses, right? So on the qualitative things like, you know, network types, right? What does it look like? But I can look at you that formally and get you know outcomes from that formalization, right? And I do so even with those little data. As far as where to go with this, um, 
The Iraq example showed hopefully, I mean, it's not a great example, but it showed hopefully there's some real-world traction to be gained by this. It's an open question how much further you can do with this type of modeling. So I'm going to look at that a little bit more specifically. You can look at additional factors of, that involve with networks. One is the mass media. What happens if you add an additional source of information about participation to the networks? And the early results there indicate that the media can actually both increase and decrease participation and can sometimes help people participate despite repression, sometimes hurt it, sometimes actually aid repression. And the second one gets to the earlier question on um, what happens if the network changes. Um, well, I, I started looking at how, what happens if you take a hierarchy and institute a sort of bureaucratic um, change where people who are removed at the top get replaced by other people. Early past says it's not very important overall on the participation level, but there's a lot to be done with that. Um, and eventually, if you close a loop, you can actually analyze state collapse by looking at how participation actually affects the pressure. So that is it. Thank you very much, and I apologize for the length there. Questions? Um, Yes. And again, I, I, it seemed like the network structure would interact with whether you're removing versus just you know, making it more unpleasant to be involved. It doesn't So the second question first, um, turns out it doesn't at all. That was, that was a big result. It doesn't matter. So I showed you that, that result with no network. That's true for every other type of network, too. It's actually a pretty astonishing result. It's true for every possible network. It doesn't matter which you do, if you move or not. It doesn't interact at all. I mean, as far as which one is, is, more, is more useful. Um, the first result, I do take a bunch of other data on, I present one because I think it's the most, it's the most interesting, it's substantively. Um, the length of time um, I avoided because these period lengths are kind of arbitrary in a sense, right? So, I mean, when there are particular empirical cases like, you know, the Monday re revolts, right? Then you can say, okay, well, everyone, every Monday is one of these times, that's fine, I can look at how long it is. But otherwise, it's kind of, I mean, a lot of these rates are, are only, only important relative to each other. So, I'm a little, so what I did here is I fixed the rate of updating to look at the changing the other rate, but what that means is I can't really look at these of, of objective rates. So I don't, I don't tend to look at that kind of um, result. Um, but it's certainly something to look at, and particularly when I close the loop, that's going to be really important, is how long these things last. Um, I think. So, so here the focus. So the, here the focus is very narrow. Right? It was only on how does collective action change when you you under repression, right? How much collective action should you expect? Right, if I want to do anything else involving closing the loop and getting at what's going to happen long term, you have to include details of why the repressor is doing that. What else can the repressor do? What other options does it have? That, that's certainly true. Um, here it's a very narrowly focused question, though. Just what effect does repression have on collective action? Um, and there, you know, so 
all the oppressor could do was not repress or repress. Right? So not repress would lead to more participation always, with the exception of the psychological effect. So the only time it actually would actually benefit the repressor here, who has one goal of stopping this thing, um, would be to would be to actually you know not repress in certain cases. But I should say that when I say repress, the mild repression could actually include bargaining. Right? Anything that actually changes your motivation to participate is repression in the sense of this model, even if it's completely positive. Right? So if you go in the streets and you give everyone you know you know three cars, right? Cars for everyone, right? That's repression in this model. It's an odd term to use for it because it's pretty positive to everyone. But it's repression in that it stops people from wanting to participate because now they're happy. So it's a positive form of repression. And in fact, one of the, the sort of the only normative story here is that if there's a possibility of a psychological response, you really want to aim towards that kind of repression because <laughs> you're in deep trouble otherwise. Um, but that, 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 that's still a form of repression, this thing. Now, to get more detail, you have to add more detail to the repressor, makes everything more complicated, harder to tease out the causality. So I try to focus only on, on this particular part. There's a question in the back? I'm Well, see, the thing is, that's, that's, that's an unknown empirical... So that's, that's true in some cases, but not all. Right? That's only empirically true in some cases. There are cases when... Um, no, so I don't include any, any response of... Any emotional response to mild repression. That's true. I could do that. Um, my strong guess is you get the same kind of results you get here um, because of this kind of equivalence between um, harsh and mild repression. So you'd probably get the exact same results if you just... Anytime you saw someone who was mildly depressed, you responded. The issue there is a little less clear, right? It's pretty obvious that if someone dies in your thing, you're going to respond, right? You, you, can, you obviously observe that, right? But how much do you observe if a movement leader gets paid off, you know, under the table? Does that make you angry? I mean, it, it, it would depend on the exact type of repression, which would kind of limit the applicability of that particular thing. So I didn't look at that. But my guess, my strong guess is that it comes to the same, and you can get more, more dissent if you do mildly repress, if you assume that. So that requires you to look at endogenous network creation, right? So the network will change over time, and you want to avoid having a particular arrangement happen, right? Um, yeah, it's certainly possible to do that. The issue with any kind of endogeneity of networks is that it opens up a giant can of worms in that how do you model that, right? We do not have clear models of, of empirical models of how people... I mean, we have lots of idiosyncratic models of how people form networks, right? But in terms of general models, we don't really have that. We have some stuff where you have there's a co- some kind of cost to joining, to maintaining a link. There's some kind of benefit you get from that link, information or whatever. And that stuff's out there, but it's all very specific to a particular functional form of that benefit, which takes away a lot of the generality of this kind of approach. So the issue is how to actually do that. So what I've started doing is taking a very specific network, the hierarchy, and a very specific type of, of advancement, which is if a leader is removed you move everyone else up, right? It's a standard sort of Iberian sort of bureaucratic thing. Um, and that's, I actually thought there'd be a huge effect of that. But so far, it's actually a very mild effect in most cases in terms of overall participation level. But it, it, I'm still pretty early in that, in that research. I want to examine how changing the form of the network by making some people more important than other people um, in terms of the actual 
attention people paid to their links, change things. So there's, there's a bunch I have to do in that still, so I don't want to you know, claim anything beforehand you know, prematurely. But it's certainly possible. The question is just avoiding having it be a you know, garbage can model where you just toss, toss everything in there, and sure, you get some results, but you have no idea why it happened. Right? And that's hard to do in this kind of thing. Um, yeah, well, they're both effective. So, so yeah, so, I mean, you're right. So, but I guess I'm wondering, do you have any intuitions about, I mean, obviously, the, the question of the oppressor is wanting to know, <laughs> how can I generate more fear and less anger? <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, I don't, um, no, you're right. So, so I treat only one at a time. And it's probably true there's a distribution of people responding to fear and with anger. So what I probably should do next with the check is to distribute fear and anger responses and see how much more fear than anger you need to get actual effective repression. Um, in terms of what will get more anger or fear, I mean, that's, that, that's an, my guess is that's an empirical question specific to a particular area. So, I'm, I mean, in some cases, I'm guessing culture will interact with this such that something you could do in, the, in one culture would have an anger effect and one culture would have a fear effect, right? So, you know, in the U.S., you know, historically, if you move, you know, certain levels of property rights, that's going to have probably an anger effect if you assume mild repression gets some kind of response. Um, in some other cultures... But the normal property rights isn't as strong. I might expect not to, not to see that as strongly. So I don't know if I can say enough about you know, when you would expect that in general. Um, my guess is, well, that's the thing. So in looking at the, in the literature and this stuff, it's really striking how much you just can't find the regularity. Right? So you might want to say, oh, well, this would cause more anger than this. Or this would cause, But you always find the counterexample of some other place that had repression. It seems very similar, but no, they had increased dissent or decreased dissent. I, mean, I remember walking through apps of poster sessions and seeing posters of, you know, this is the South Korean revolt of this, this year, and look, they have more, you know, dissent. And I don't actually know. I mean, you know, I can say if you have anger, this will happen. But in terms of, you know, when you will have anger, no, I don't, I don't pretend to have expertise in, in that psychological response. Um, yes, actually. Is there a policy implication or strategic implication? Who might be interested? Actually, yeah, I have. I have. So I mentioned earlier, I, I actually presented this a couple of years ago for a bunch of mathematical types in the, in the Army. Um, and they actually found most interesting, which is I find kind of actually happy, the result that both types of repression become the same result. I took that as a, as a sign that they would, you know, that's interesting to them. Um, I'm actually going to a workshop in a couple months in D.C. for the National Defense University, which is going to look at how these models can help form policy. Um, so maybe that will be also beneficial in terms of this. Um, I mean, my hope is that the normative aspect of, I mean, I have an incentive to play up the anger angle right normatively, because the anger angle normatively has the positive implication of lots of ineffective repression. So hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. Because that's my initial bias, is it's usually bad, right? So that's what I like to play up. Um, it's also true that if you get more fear, that's completely right. Um, it, overrun, it can potentially overrun the, the anger effect, in which case you don't want to say that so much if you want to avoid having repressive acts. Um, 
you know, so the hope eventually is, you know, the policy actions are, you know, what tactics should you take? And again, there are lots of good repression, right? I mean, I, you know, repression has a, is a bad word because it's usually applied in a bad way. But, you know, when you try to stop terrorist activity, that's repression, or repressing activities. If you're a parent trying to stop a room full of teenagers as, as a, you know, as a, um, you know, as the whatever person in charge of the teenagers, right, you don't, you want to repress them, right? You don't want to let them run free. That's, that's totally fine, right? No one would say that repression is bad. So I try to keep this as much as possible positive and, you know, normative-free. But my biases are that play up the anger angle and talk about how bad it could be in theory. Well, no, actually, <laughs> I we're getting here, but um, yeah, well, technically in that, in that sense, if we're going to treat it broadly, anger is joy in this model. They have the same functional effect. So in theory, yeah, you could call anger joy, and then everyone's joyously <laughs> responding, and they all participate more because they're happy. Oh, I see. So, so, so and they, they participate, and then they're joyful, and they're not doing what they want to do. I'm not, they guess the, I guess, I guess, sorry, I guess fear is joy then in that sense. This gets kind of weird, so I'm really hard. <laughs> um, No, that's, that's certainly true. But on the other hand, people on tails introduce the most risk to people connecting to them. So the people who might be connected to them have the most incentive not to be connected to them. So the question is then, how do you balance that? Right? There's a cost for connecting in that you might put yourself at risk because you'll be associated with this person. But that person wants to associate with you, so they're going to come out and talk to you a lot. So you have a question of you know mobilization and you know grassroots. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff there that if my goal is to do this generally, it's going to be hard to convince people that, oh, this is totally general. It applies to all possible mobilization cases when this complicated you know, dealing is. And, you know, I'm working up slowly to try to get more pieces of time that I can understand really well before I move on to some of the more complicated stuff. So I can at least say, I think it's this, because I've checked this completely over in this, this simpler model completely, and I know what happens really well. So now I'm adding this one piece, and I can see how that piece works. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of great questions about the endogeneity issue, and I, you know, it's still very early. No, that can be across across borders. So it's really question about entry, it's not Oh, I see. Hmm. Huh. Well, that's a good question. I never, I never thought of that. So it would be selective repression against a selective part of the network. Yeah, I never thought about that. Um, hmm. That's really interesting. I, I should look at that. That's a good question. Yeah, I, don't, I never thought about that particular um, outcome. Um, my guess is it's far less effective because... You know, at the same time you're repressing your, your people, there's links to the outside which are, you know, increasing that. In which case, links to outside will probably have the same effect as sort of influential people in your network. So you, since you can't move people on the other side of the border, you'd probably try to crack down on those links if you could. Um, so that's much my guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they'd have to... 
at that point, they probably have to pursue a more targeted strategy against the specific links that connect those two different people, the two different areas. Now, if they all can move across the border freely, right, then there's not really a network anymore. It's just moving across the border, right? Um, but no, that's, 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 thank you. That's true. Yeah. Going to a very bad place. Um, no, no, no. That's, that's a pretty good point. Um, so, if you included, um, if you included as part of internal motivations, the fact like funding could be an increased motivation to want to participate because now you have extra funding, you think it's more likely to actually succeed. Then yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that that would be a same situation, but you have two different two different um, audiences. One of which responds, they're not at much risk. They have more. They already have more more interest to participate, and then they get ang now they get angrier because they're not afraid of what's going to happen to them. You know the audience that yeah, so that will have an interesting spillover effect. Well, I want to thank David for coming uh, up from Florida, and I, I failed to mention earlier that David did his PhD at Stanford uh, some time ago. So I left that detail out. I apologize. Uh, thank you very much for coming. It's been great. I hope we'll have a couple more. I don't know, William. Do you know if Alan has any more BDM seminars scheduled for this year, or is this? May not be. So thank you. If this is the spring conclusion of the series, and that's been a terrific conclusion. So thank you very much. Thank you. Good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you.